Chapter 37 of Autobiography, Memories and Experiences, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Autobiography, Memories and Experiences, Volume 2 by Moncure Conway. Chapter 37 into the scientific life of london i entered with religious earnestness i had brought letters from america to sir charles and lady lyle who were hearty sympathizers with the anti-slavery cause they were liberals in religion generally attending martineau's chapel and sometimes south place which had inherited the goodwill of scientific and literary men from the time of w j fox who gathered such men around him at the house of the lyles i met men of science among others huxley sir roderick murchison tyndall dr carpenter sir francis galton sir joseph hooker sir william grove and mrs somerville huxley gave me admission to the regular lectures at the royal college of surgeons and tyndall sent us invitations to the royal institution faraday was getting old but i heard him twice I made the acquaintance of the Wedgwoods, whose house in Regent's Park was a center of hospitality. Mr. Wedgwood was a philologist and his wife a sister of Charles Darwin. At their house I met Dr. Erasmus Darwin, brother of Charles, a grand-looking and learned man. Thus I resumed with enthusiasm the scientific studies begun under Agassiz and Baird i found in eighteen sixty three a great stir in london scientific and theological circles on account of a discovery in france sir charles lyle in his antiquity of man eighteen sixty three had said quote, human remains will be detected in the older alluvium of european valleys end quote, and within three months his prophecy was fulfilled the prehistoric jaw found at abbeville being dead yet spoke and in such a non-mosaic way that a sharp controversy arose early in may a conference of scientific men met in paris then adjourned to abbeville for one week the attention of scientific europe was concentrated on that international congress gathered around a brown bone and awaited its verdict with more interest than for tidings from the battlefields in america Years before, a professor of geology at Cambridge, England, had discovered in Kent's cavern, Torquay, human bones along with flint implements and the bones of fossil animals, but fear for the mosaic record induced this pious geologist to keep his discovery secret. The fossils had to be rediscovered. This was done by Mr. Pengelly. By Sir Charles Lyell's introduction, I was able to explore Kent's cavern under the guidance of Pengelly. The discoveries continually made were so momentous that the government had put the place under guard far in the depths of the hole as the folk called it we watched the workmen and i saw a bit of some extinct animal picked out pengelly told me that shortly before an aged woman of the bone-picking profession seeing him at the door of the cave examining a pile of bones offered him three halfpence for them when he declined, the bone-picker, thinking she had not offered enough, said, quote, Well, I can't give any more. They're an uncommon bad lot. End quote. 
the clergyman frowned on these researches, and a pious lady of his flock asked Pengalli whether the strata above the bones were six thousand years old. Ah, madam, he replied, you may add to that six many more knots, and still it won't be naughty enough. Pengalli expressed his amazement that the really religious mind of England had not welcomed Darwin's discovery. Quote, if you tell me of a mechanic who has made a remarkable steam engine, I may admire his skill. But if you tell me of a man who has made an engine which can of itself produce another engine, and that another, an engine from which is evolved an endless series of steadily self-improving engines, I might say that inventor was a god. End quote. At Lamorna, the house of the Pengellis, I met an invited company and learned that Torquay had been schooled in science by Pengelly and his assistants. Assistants? Yes, some old bones which he brings out, and makes them tell all about Torquay as it was a billion years ago, and the people that lived there, and huge creatures that no longer exist. It had become de rigueur in Torquay for gentry to recognize Kent's cavern as the tomb of their ancestors. One lady told me in confidence that Mr. Pengelly had gone to that cavern every day for years, except one day so frightfully stormy that he stayed at home. But on that day his big cavern boots were distinctly seen tramping through the streets as usual out to the hole. Soon after the discovery at Abbeville, Sir Charles Lyell delivered his address as president of the British Association at Bath. I remember well the enthusiasm with which he was received. His long labors for scientific freedom, his establishment of the new genesis, his brave assertion of truth against sanctified traditions, all these were now corroborated by a consensus of the competent. With his refined face, his gentle, unpretending look, as he glanced around with childlike surprise at the multitude of elegant ladies and gentlemen whose applause acclaimed him as if a conquering hero, he was in my eyes as fit a figure for the laureate's verse as ancient Arthur. He began by reminding men of science of the necessity that they should enlarge their ideas of geologic time in order to realize the operation of the forces of natural selection. He said that a rich man, reproached for the smallness of his donation to a charity, answered that in early life he had been very poor, and could never get the chill of poverty out of his bones. Sir Charles reminded men of science that they had so long been restricted to the pittance of six thousand years as the world's age, that even now they were apt to go on adding a mere million years or so where boundless time is needed. On the Sunday of this meeting of the Association at Bath, I preached in the Unitarian Church a sermon on the text, Nothing But Leaves, which had pleased my most thoughtful friends in America and London. The Lyles and many other scientific people were present, and my acquaintance among the members was extended. I attended the annual meetings of the Association pretty regularly, and saw the discussion about the antiquity of man steadily fossilized like the Abbeville and Torquay bones. It is digging in an exhausted Kent's hole of theology to talk of that once burning controversy. Mention of the Abbeville jaw reminds me of a skull at Halifax, England, which I saw after giving there a lecture before the Philosophical Society. Mr. Leyland, an antiquarian, offered to show me through the historical places and institutions of the city. 
he guided me to the ancient church and while pointing out the old black canopy over the front said quote, it originally had rich colors but was blackened by the darkness of the reformation End quote. my scholarly friend thus revealed himself as either a catholic or a philosopher he and professor tyndall had together served a scientific apprenticeship in the institution at halifax in the museum there is a collection of egyptian skulls a manufacturer of halifax visited egypt and purchased a large number of mummies whose heads each enclosed in a box were shipped to hull for halifax museum i remarked the whiteness and shapeliness of one skull the rest being brown and mr leyland told me an incident about it it was necessary to boil the mummied heads and scrape them this task being entrusted to himself and others in the institution while they were so engaged a strange odor filled the room it proceeded from an untouched box which they saw was moist hastily opening it they beheld a beautiful female face the eyes were as if alive the cheeks plump the flesh rounded and full they called to tyndall and others in another room but when they arrived the face had collapsed and was oozing away it was concluded that this lady probably of high rank had been mummified with more potent chemicals and unguents than the others and that these had been relaxed by contact with seawater while on the ship that evening i wrote a lucianic dialogue between this egyptian lady and the learned catholic who saw her and whose religion also had certain beautiful features in my historic imagination i was able with all sincerity to sympathize with mr leyland's feeling against the art destroying puritans and he on his side loved our much anathematized professor tyndall and had a faith in science not found in orthodox presbyterianism at that time it has been my privilege to know the leading scientific men in america and england personally in many instances in their homes and i can recall none that are not associated in my memory with sweetness as well as light none of them were orthodox and what could bigotry say against a tree that bore such fruits the creeds that academically damned these men yielded to their characters before adapting themselves to their discoveries there was not one murmur from any pulpit when sir charles lyle under whose revelations the mosaic cosmology crumbled was buried in westminster abbey after the burial of lyle i walked from the abbey with tyndall and said i was somewhat disturbed by the unreality of some parts of the service but tyndall had not listened to the service with a professional ear it came to him from a remote era when it was genuine when i think he said what the old abbey means what historic memories and sacred associations have consecrated it and now that at length it should gather among the great men of the past the great man of the present without regard to his disbeliefs why the whole thing is so grand and so affecting that i did not heed the details tears were in his eyes as he spoke and i took his words to heart sir charles lyle remembered well the ordeals through which the discoveries of his time had to pass Quote, theologians first cry it isn't true next it isn't new finally we discovered it ourselves End quote. once when he was talking in this way sir william grove came in and was not so hopeful as sir charles and lady lyle and myself about the advance of rational ideas 
i have a notion said justice grove that it will take about as long for the superstitions to pass away as it took them to grow i suggested that there are now enlightening agents that did not exist when they grew and though sir william was rather incredulous he perhaps became more optimistic when lyle was buried in the abbey that was the first salient proclamation that english christianity was detached from the bible so far as science was concerned professor huxley was a man of conservative temperament and conciliatory disposition but in defending great scientific generalizations he was drawn into the polemic attitude there was not a pulpit in england from which issued instructions bearing on religion of such profound importance as those heard from huxley i never missed one of his lectures whether at the hunterian royal or london institutions or at workingmen's institutes and at st george's hall he also lectured at times in my chapel not on religion but in sunday afternoon courses we arranged for the people huxley was a perfect lecturer as artistic and finished in speaking to the workmen as when addressing a learned audience without notes without a hesitating or a superfluous word simple lucid he carried every mind with him he did not gesticulate nor emphasize and without any tone of paradox he swept away fallacies without seeming to know it huxley studied the religions of mankind in their philosophical bearings in conversation he expressed to me his belief that the english people were fundamentally simple deists as their pagan ancestors were their deity became more civilized as they themselves did in nature he found both good and revolting things suggesting he said that if there were any creator he must be deemed a demiurgos he said he had not been bothered in early life about bible reading as a duty and consequently used to enjoy the bible stories this may account for Huxley's concession that the Bible might be read in the public schools. His free-thinking friends were distressed by this, and when I spoke of it to Leslie Stephen, he said, quote, What made us free-thinkers? Why, reading the Bible, end quote. Huxley and Tyndall threw themselves with zeal into the struggle for opening the museums and art galleries on Sunday afternoons. Nearly all of the clergymen of the English Church in London aided our movement at the meeting presided over by dean stanley many clergymen being present tyndall in the flow of his argument said quote, we only want half of sunday for intellectual improvement end quote. whereat the dean began to laugh the delighted audience caught the unintentional joke and would not allow tyndall to apologize an important side of huxley was his scientific imagination who that listened to his lectures could ever forget how in his hand the little piece of chalk swelled to a world populous with animal life or a bit of coal became a diamond lens through which were seen the trees ferns and giant mosses of the primeval forest i remember listening to him on an occasion when he invited us to take our stand with him in imagination on london bridge with him we remarked the current of the thames the slope of its banks their distant curving then passed on beyond its boats barges and ships to its sources and its mouth varied by glances at primitive tribes on its shores till we traced the old river its tides its geological work back to a different world and to the confines of the solar system all this was the work of imagination interpreting scientific fact and a finished literary art jointly working on the material of thorough knowledge.
the most far-reaching hypothesis ever made by anyone since the discovery of evolution was in my opinion one originally made by huxley concerning the vast chasm moral and mental between man and the highest of the lower animals this was first given in a lecture to workingmen quote well but i am told at once somewhat triumphantly you say in the same breath that there is a great moral and intellectual chasm between man and the lower animals how is this possible when you declare that moral and intellectual characteristics depend on structure and yet tell us that there is no such gulf between the structure of man and that of the lower animals i think that objection is based upon a misconception of the real relations which exist between structure and function between mechanism and work function is the expression of molecular forces and arrangements no doubt but does it follow from this that variation in function so depends upon variation in structure that the former is always exactly proportioned to the latter if there is no such relation if the variation in function which follows on a variation in structure may be enormously greater than the variation of structure then you see the objection fall to the ground take a couple of watches made by the same maker and as completely alike as possible set them upon a table and the function of each which is its rate of going will be performed in the same manner and you shall be able to distinguish no difference between them but let me take a pair of pincers and if my hand is steady enough to do it let me just lightly crush together the bearings of the balance wheel or force to a slightly different angle the teeth of the escapement of one of them and of course you know the immediate result will be that the watch so treated from that moment will cease to go but what proportion is there between the structural alteration and the functional result is it not perfectly obvious that the alteration is of the minutest kind yet that slight as it is it has produced an infinite difference in the performance of the function of these two instruments well now apply that to the present question what is it that constitutes and makes man what he is what is it but his power of language that language giving him the means of recording his experience making every generation somewhat wiser than its predecessor more in accordance with the established order of the universe what is it but this power of speech of recording experience which enables men to be men looking before and after and in some dim sense understanding the working of this wondrous universe and which distinguishes man from the whole brute world i say that this functional difference is vast unfathomable and truly infinite in its consequences and i say at the same time that it may depend upon structural differences which shall be absolutely inappreciable to us with our present means of investigation what is this very speech that we are talking about i am speaking to you at this moment but if you were to alter in the minutest degree the proportion of the nervous forces now acting in the two nerves which supply the muscles of my glottis i shall become suddenly dumb the voice is produced only so long as the vocal cords are parallel and these are parallel only so long as certain muscles contract with exact equality and that again depends on the equality of action of those two nerves i spoke of so that a change of the minutest kind in the structure of one of these nerves or in the structure of the part in which it originates or of the supply of blood to that part or of one of the muscles to which it is distributed might render all of us dumb 
but a race of dumb men deprived of all communication with those who could speak would be little indeed removed from the brutes and the moral and intellectual difference between them and ourselves would be practically infinite though the naturalist would not be able to find a single shadow of even specific structural difference i remember asking huxley whether if the throat of a fine opera singer like jenny lind and the throat of a person of coarse voice were given to an expert scientist to dissect he could tell by great care which vocal cords belonged to the singer and which to the rude voice he replied that it would be as difficult as for a musical expert to determine between two violins outwardly alike in color and shape which was the cremona and which an ordinary violin he must first hear a note sounded among the beautiful things in my memory are the garden parties of sir joseph and lady hooker at kew gardens their house and garden adjoining the great gardens of which sir joseph was the scientific superintendent were an ideal place for the social gatherings of scientific and literary people such from all parts of the world were met there lady hooker was an attractive and gracious hostess she was the daughter of the reverend mr samanda rector of malvern i had the pleasure of passing a few days at the rectory of this clergyman and could readily comprehend how lady hooker came by her scientific tastes and knowledge her father was accustomed to form the young ladies of his parish into a class of scientific ramblers on a certain day of the week they repaired to some locality rich in fossils or in botanical specimens under his direction they became experts on my arrival there the rector was absent and could not return until dinner but he had arranged that some of his young ladies should take me on a scientific ramble they appeared in a handsome wagon all in pretty gowns each armed with her little hammer when we had ascended a height overlooking the valley of the severn one of the ladies pointed out to me the hills where the sea had left its record in seashells and without any allusion to the deluge described the river's work in making the valley at certain stony passes we alighted and small stones were picked up in each of which the hammer's tap revealed a crustacean fossil the young ladies handled delicately these tiny monuments of their ancestors in the evening mr Samans went over them with us in his charming way after i had built my house inglewood at bedford park i planted in my garden two slips of the famous glastonbury thorn it had been mentioned in some lectures of mine reported in a way that appeared to a gentleman in glastonbury too skeptical he wrote me that a tree descended from the ancient holly thorn was in his garden and that it flowered twice annually the second time about christmas i answered that i did not doubt that there was a biannual thorn but only meant to study the legend of its miraculous origin at glastonbury where it was said to have flowered from the staff of joseph of arimathea when he laid down to perish in the snowstorm protecting him with a canopy of leaves and blossoms and thereby converting the heathen he sent me two slips of good size which i planted one tree i named saint patrick because the same legend is related to him in connection with the holy thorn at saint patrice in france the other i named saint christopher because his legend was that he converted the heathen by sticking his staff in the ground where it at once flowered the tree named after saint patrick withered but sir joseph hooker used to come over from kew and advise me about the saint christopher and the tree is flourishing to this day but it is not exact in its legendary reverence for christmas
a member of my south place society mr classen an accomplished geologist having invited me to ramble with twenty geologists of his club i gladly accepted the ramble was through the wild sussex the time whitsuntide when the landscape was full of glory arrived at battle we began at the extreme surface of the weald the duke of cleveland's place where the duchess came out to see us and offered the courtesies of her mansion and freedom of the antiquities within and around it for geologists however william the norman and his ferocious fauna are creatures of yesterday we were also visited on hastings cliff by the nut-brown nymph of the place this sun-tanned beauty of seventeen begged us in the usual gypsy tone to buy photographs of drippingwell ecclesborne glen lover's seat what is lover's seat inquired our chorus i'll tell you she cried and sure-footed as a chamois she leaped upon a rock overhanging the precipice of one hundred and fifty feet and began her recital in hereditary sing-song there were two lovers also a cruel father a leap a rescue and a large family happy ever hafter descending to the beach we came to a good point for observation and all sat down on the shingle dr busk and his daughters professor tideman of the geological coast survey and others joined us and we listened to the full story of the weald from his rock the clear-headed geologist william topley spoke for nearly an hour as i lay on the shingle listening to graphic descriptions of hills no longer existing and rivers no longer flowing i felt myself in the presence of realities whose vastness and sublimity reduced to fantasies the visions of dante and milton the instructed eye here beholds a mighty ocean and even while it looks the ocean dries up and disappears leaving its record in vast deposits hardened into rocks a continent rises is covered with plants and animals and now a great lake forms over it then the whole of it sinks and again an ocean flows over all presently once more the land emerges to be denuded by the sea planed by glaciers and worn by rains every page of its history is laid bare there is something strangely mystical in the appearance of the great downs spreading inland from the white chalk cliffs which gave its name to albion they are like vast billows rising to their crests they have a long gradual slope on one and the same side and on the other a precipitous inward curved escarpment the effect is that of a sea that has been suddenly solidified and down on the beach the small rocks are found with similar incline on one side and escarpment on the other the high downs will be laid low some day but for those who try to think in geologic time the placard of danger set on the cliff's edge appeals to generations billions of years ahead we lunched at the house of st john peyton to the virginia branch of whose race my great-grandfather dr valentine peyton belonged and at the inn where we passed the night our excellent dinner was followed by comic speeches and uproarious fun it was delightful to see these geologists who had all day been traveling through immemorial ages seeing dried-up seas in a shell and extinct fauna in a bone come now to their own time and good fellowship when i returned to my own religious field of study i found it all wheeled elemental floods of norse and teutonic delusion streams of mythology from east and south 
stratum of superstition piled on stratum natural and unnatural selections co-working to produce an average man whose wheeled brain is the world of christendom in miniature end of chapter thirty seven